All right. Leviticus chapter 2 this morning. And since we've proven that we can indeed cover a whole chapter in one sermon, we'll aim to do that very same thing this week with the grain offering. Grain offering, Leviticus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We'll read all the way through to verse 16. When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it, put frankincense on it. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, one of whom shall take from it his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy of the offering to the Lord made by fire. Verse 4, And if you bring as an offering a grain offering baked in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. But if your offering is a grain offering baked in a pan, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your offering is a grain offering baked in a covered pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. You shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And then the priest shall take from the grain offering a memorial portion and burn it on the altar. It is an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And what is left on the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. Verse 11. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering to the Lord made by fire. As for the offering of the first fruits, you shall offer them to the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet aroma. And every offering um, of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits green heads of grain roasted on the fire, grain beaten from full heads. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. Then the priest shall burn the memorial portion, part of its beaten grain and part of its oil, with all the frankincense as an offering made. By fire to the Lord. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father, we come before Your throne of grace with glad hearts this morning. Even acknowledging that, that many of us are struggling, many of us may be physically weary, some of us may be even feeling emotionally or spiritually battered. Yet, Father, at this moment, we recognize that you are indeed Lord, that you always be Lord, that you are God over all with all power and might to visit us with your grace to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. You have already done so, Lord. You've done so through the sacrifice of praise, of song that came from our lips. You've offered us grace through the reading of your word and through prayer. You do sustain your people. You edify us, Father, uniting us together and building us into the head who is Christ Jesus. Father, we pray in this moment that you might grant us grace to hear your word. Would you grant us focus? Help us put aside every potential distraction 
to give ourselves fully to the task of receiving your word, that we might be the recipients of that grace which we so desperately need. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So you probably guessed already that this morning we'll be talking about the grain offering. And I know you're amped. I know as you read this week, you thought, oh boy, I just can't wait to see what God has for us through Leviticus 2. Um, What we want to do is we want to look at the prescription for the grain offering itself and then hopefully come to an understanding of what the nature of the grain offering is. That's kind of going to be where we're going to go. And it might be typical for a while when we look at the offerings to do that very thing, to look at the prescription of the directions of the grain offering and then to look at the nature, the why, the reason behind it. So before we do that, I'm going to continue to remind you of the context because it is utterly important to understand exactly what's transpiring here. Remember, the holy king had just ascended his throne right in the midst of his holy people and he's speaking through his holy servant, Moses. We began to look last week at the first of five major sacrifices established by this holy king for his holy people to offer him. Last week we looked exclusively at the burnt offering. It was an offering requiring the entire animal to be killed, prepared, and burned on the altar minus its skin. And the goal of the burnt offering was atonement for the worshiper and favor from God for his people. Among other things, it taught the Israelites that nothing short of wholehearted devotion was worthy of the worship of the Lord. And this burnt offering teaches us that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the perfect burnt offering, loving and obeying his Father even unto death. His wholehearted devotion has been credited to us, and his whole person's sacrifice has washed away our sins. And so we consider together how much more we should offer our bodies as living sacrifices with wholehearted devotion to the Lord. This week, again, another sacrifice, the grain offering. And the grain offering was often presented with another offering, so it's fitting that it it follows directly behind the burnt offering. We're going to look at it again in chapter 2, more or less verse by verse here, as it's prescribed for God's people. So we start with the prescription of the grain offering. I want to warn you that as we do this, it, it might feel like at the end, uh, like our kids' time, you have more questions than you have answers. Um, you're going to notice a bunch of things that we probably could have unpacked in chapter 2, but haven't or didn't. But what we want to do is we, we just want to understand what exactly is prescribed here and hopefully come to understand the details involved before we then look at the nature itself. And so first, we look at the uncooked grain offering. That is the first one prescribed in verses 1 through 3, the uncooked grain offering. Uh, Look in verse 1. When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. This fine flour you saw over and over again is the main component in every grain offering, cooked or uncooked. The amount is not specified here, but we know from other places in Scripture it's most likely a tenth of ephah, which is about... 9 to 16 cups, and between 3 to 5 pounds. Now, if you're anything like me, that does absolutely nothing for you. I have no idea what that means. Um, But I do know 
that it was a lot more than a handful, right? In addition, remember, they're not walking down to the local convenience store to pick up their bag of flour, are they? This was from wheat or barley that had to be harvested, then ground, and notice what kind of flour it is. It's fine flour. It's finely ground. This was the very best of their crop and a large amount of it. We also see that it involved oil. Most likely olive oil and the amount here also not specified was most likely between a quarter and a half a gallon. Oil was pricey. Frankincense, which is a type of incense made from gum resin from a tree that's really hard to pronounce, so I'm not going to try to pronounce it. It was an incense that was not edible. So you notice in the text, while it's offered with the grain offering, the whole of the frankincense is just offered on the altar and not part. It's not an edible portion, not given to the priest Aaron and his sons to eat. Now, obviously, when we think of frankincense, we think of... Christmas, right? The wise men, absolutely. We know from the birth narratives of Christ that the Magi brought this gift, a pricey and costly gift that laid before the incarnate Lord. So as we move on, we see this handed the priests and they, they take a handful of fine flour with oil, with all of its frankincense, and they burned it all in the altar. And this was called or considered a memorial portion. We're going to look at that. Remember that, by the way. Put a pin in that because we're going to look at that, what it means later on in detail. The rest, what wasn't burned as a memorial portion, was again given to Aaron and to his sons. The Levites and priests were to focus on ministering before the Lord. And so the Levites did not receive an allotment of land in the same way the other tribes of Israel did. Their portion was the Lord. And one of the ways the Lord provides for the Levites and priests was through the sacrifices of God's people. So a portion was burnt on the altar. And then remember, the burnt offering was unique in that all of the offering was burned. Other offerings, including this one, only a portion was held back and, and given to the priest Aaron, his son. It also tells us that this was a most holy part of the Lord's offering. Most of these offerings were divided into holy and most holy. A holy portion could be eaten in a ritually clean place, usually by some priest and those who offered the sacrifice. But a most holy sacrifice or offering could only be eaten by those who were, in, who were holy in a holy place. It was to never leave the tabernacle. It was to be eaten there by those who were holy, Aaron and his sons. And so we see the cooked grain, uncooked grain offering, and we see the three ingredients mentioned there. Flour, oil, and frankincense. Don't add all those together. It would not taste well. Uh, but the flour and oil, we know very well. What about the cooked grain offering? The cooked grain offering, well, we see some similarities here, except we'll see it's broken down by a grain offering that's cooked in an oven, on a griddle, or in a pan, right? Don't get hungry on me, all right? Hopefully, this is breakfast nature, right? So this is, hopefully, you've already eaten now. An oven here would have been made of clay, about 27 to 39 inches high, probably 2 to 3 feet tall. It would have been close to 2 feet wide. And according to commentators, the bread was made in the oven as follows. A fire was first built on a layer of small stones on the oven floor. Then the coals were raked or scooped out. So the fire was made. It burned down the coals. The coals were removed. And the clay oven would have retained the heat. 
And the bread would have been placed inside, either against the side wall or just inside the oven, and would have made you a nice thick loaf made with flour and oil. Wafers were also made in similar fashion. The difference between a loaf and a wafer is obviously a loaf is fuller and softer. The wafer would have been thin and harder. The difference in between offering these sacrifices was really none. Um, So, uh, okay, what about baked on a griddle? It says pan, by the way, in the New King James Version, and covered pan, but we're going to go with pan being griddle and covered pan being what we would know as a pan, and here's why. Uh, The the griddle or the the pan that's mentioned here is kind of a plate that would have had a, a rounded side, and the convex side would be facing up. The cakes were cooked on the outside of the griddle. Griddle cakes were hard and thin. They were also unleavened. As we know, all the sacrifices did not contain leaven or honey. They were broken or crumbled after they were made. And the worshiper would pour oil on the crumbled pieces before offering this to the priest. But we can also assume most likely they would have placed frankincense on that as well. But that's not stated. And then finally we have a covered pan. This would have been my choice, right? Talking about deep fried is what we're talking about here. You look at me and you say, that's a guy who likes his deep fried. And you're right. Um, We would have a pan here, possibly a a cover pan, obviously a lid, a nice thick edge. Would have been cooked in oil. It's just fried bread, right? Sounds Baptist. Uh, It sounds yummy. Uh, Though the text doesn't say, we would also assume this was unleavened. And so just like the uncooked grain offerings, the grain offering made in ovens, griddles, and pans were given to the priest. Exact same protocol here. The memorial portion is placed on the altar. The rest of it's held back uh, for the priest. and It's a food offering. It has a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Got it? All right. Now we're going to see some really interesting general stipulations for all the grain offerings. Some restrictions, some qualifications for the grain offerings. The first is the mention of the exclusion of leaven and honey. There's an exclusion of leaven and honey. We're about to have science class up in here. Uh, Verse 11 tells us this. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering to the Lord made by fire. That's a prohibition, clear and straightforward, right? But we would ask, why? Why? It's worth asking, why was, was yeast or leaven prohibited? The text doesn't really say, and, and several commentators are going to offer you a bunch of different explanations, and I've given you the, the three main ones that they offer in your notes. Probably the most common is that though the exact process may not have been understood, the effect of yeast and honey starting in one portion and spreading throughout symbolized the corruption of sinful influence. It symbolized corruption of sinful influence. That was the symbol that most people associated with yeast or leaven. The corruption that occurs when, when sin is allowed to infiltrate the covenant community. We certainly see this understanding of the leaven uh, by the time of the New Testament, right? See it often. For instance, in your reading this week, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about the leavening effect of sin when it goes unchecked in church without biblical church discipline. We also see it used by Jesus in a positive way as a description of the kingdom of God, right? Um, Yeast is also used as an analogy of the how of the kingdom. It starts slow and then it spreads throughout the world. That's one proposal. Commentators say that as the why. Another proposal, though, is is that some commentators say 
the leavening agent was excluded because they caused change in the dough. The yeast mixing into the dough, therefore, would have been symbolic of disorder or disharmony. Because it causes change in the dough, the yeast mixing into the dough is symbolic of disorder or disharmony. That is, the yeast inside the dough would release gases that cause the dough to rise. And and most of us, if not all of us, are somewhat familiar with the function, if not the exact process. And so the process, the proposal goes like this. Leviticus actually emphasizes order. There's a significance to the order of things in the book of Leviticus. In this way, it actually goes back even to creation. And and that God is recreating through Israel a covenant people. And so he begins throughout Leviticus to say, this belongs here, and this belongs here, this doesn't belong here, and leaven would just mess that all up, and so it's symbolic of disorder or disharmony. A final proposal, however, is that only dead things were to be offered on the altar, and yeast is a living organism. Only dead things were to be offered on the altar, and yeast is a living organism. Now, listen, possibly knowing it was a living organism is difficult for us to know whether or not Israel did, but even... If they didn't fully understand it, the divine author who issued the command did not have yeast or leaven on the altar because it was a living. So those are the three proposals. And here's what I'll tell you. You want to know which one I believe? Doesn't matter. Um, Because there's no real reason to deny any of these whatsoever. It's likely that these all three were lessons that were being taught in the exclusion of yeast and honey from the cooked grain. By the way, why, why honey? We didn't answer that, right? Well... I focused on leaven. Honey would actually speed up the process because it's a natural sugar. Look at you guys. I love you. All right, so it would give the yeast more sugar to do what leaven does. I know who the bakers are in here. That's for sure. All right. And so uh, in verse 13, we see the second stipulation. We saw an exclusion of yeast and honey, but now we see an inclusion. They are to all include salt. Here's the second general stipulation, the inclusion of salt. So if you are to exclude yeast or leaven and honey, and you are to include salt, always. So again, with our interpretation of the New Testament, we probably immediately think that's because it's a preservative, right? That's what we've heard often. That's what we've been taught about salt, that it was or is used to slow the decomposition of Food. Therefore, as an analogy, this is a call to God's people to act as salt in the midst of society, slowing down or hindering corruption throughout the society. It's the mere opposite of yeast, where yeast is seen symbolizing the corruption of a group of nations. Salt symbolizes that which guards against such degradation. And while that might be helpful and true as an analogy... The text itself actually gives us a very different reason for always including salt, doesn't it? It isn't to teach a lesson about the effect of righteousness in the world, but to remind the worshiper of the covenant with his Lord. That's what salt does. Salt reminds the worshiper of their covenant with their Lord. Verse 13 says, You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. 
So, so salt and salt of the covenant had a very specific meaning. Salt underscored the covenant's permanence. That's what salt did. It wasn't so much the preservation of our righteous effect on the world as it was a reminder of the permanence of the covenant. In fact, in Numbers chapter 18, verse 19, Moses tells the Israelites, he says, It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. That is the salt of the covenant. It was to remind God's people that his covenant with them is an everlasting covenant. It's a permanent covenant. It is not a contract, in other words, but a whole life commitment. It's a more akin to marriage than it is a business contract. The agreement he made with them is meant to be a permanent relationship. The Lord will not forget his covenant promises, and Israel is not to forget their covenant obligations. That's why salt is to be included. And for for this reason, all offerings were to include salt. and, And here's the point, church family. Listen, we're prone to forgetting, are we not? It's part of our fallen condition. You and I are prone to unfaithfulness. The salt was really a little bit like a wedding ring. It was meant to remind the Israelites that they belong to God. So when Jesus tells his disciples that they are the salt of the world, he's not primarily concerned with teaching them that they need to be so morally upright that they will turn back the tide of corruption in the fallen world. And now it's true, we are to have a, um, a preserving effect on society, but salt was first and foremost a reminder that Israel was married to God. They were in an everlasting covenant with him until death do they part. And so when Jesus is telling his disciples, you are the salt of the world, he's saying you are the true Israel. You belong to God. Okay, final paragraph of chapter 2 very quickly explains the protocol for grain offerings of first fruits. That's the last thing we see, a specific type of grain offering in verses 14 through 16. The grain offering of first fruits. They were to be green heads of grain roasted on the fire, grain beaten from full heads. And this was a a food that was actually commonly enjoyed by the Israelites. And so one method for preparation went something like this. The, The ears were burnt alongside the stalks before they were quite ripe and then rubbed out in order to create this type of grain. The other regulations to apply a grain offering are given here as well. Same thing, oil, frankincense included, memorial portion taken out, burned on the altar, okay? Same thing. All right, so there we had it. We had a bus tour of the grain offering. It's done. Thank you for sticking with me with all that. Now we get to what does that all mean? I'm glad you asked. What is the nature of the grain offering? What is it really about? If that's the prescription, that's how it's supposed to be done, what is it supposed to communicate? What's at the heart of the grain offering? The Hebrew name for the grain offering is quite general. It's the word minha. What does that mean? It it simply means a gift. In Leviticus, it's used exclusively of the grain offering. And, And by looking at its usage in other places, it gives us an idea of what this minha or gift actually meant. First, this. First, the nature of this grain offering was that it was a tribute to a sovereign Lord. 
nature of the grain offering was that it was a tribute to a sovereign Lord. One way in which the minna was used to, in the context of a tribute paid by a subject, a superior or king or sovereign. And, and there are several examples of this in Scripture. In fact, I gave you many in your reading this week. In fact, I laughed this week when I was doing my reading thinking they're going to have no idea what this possibly relates to Leviticus 2. But it was fun for me. Um, for instance... When Jacob returns after being exiled, right, fleeing from his brother and stealing his blessing, he returns and sends his people before him to offer minas, a gift, in order to appease his brother. Another example is the story, if you read this week, it's just crazy, right? Ehud and Judges, judge of Israel, he brought a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. He brought a tribute because at that time, Israel was under the subjugation to Moab. Well, actually... He partly brought that tribute to him so he could stab him in the stomach. But that's a completely different sermon. Um, Likewise, when David is king, Moab is now under subjugation of Israel. So guess what the Moabites bring to King David? A minha, a tribute. This obviously fits well with the context of Leviticus. Remember what it is. Remember, the holy king has taken his throne and he's addressing his holy people through his holy servant. So the grain offering is a tribute in recognition of the sovereignty of God over the lives of those who offered it. But in contrast to the circumstances that normally demand this type of tribute, this gift is offered voluntarily to God. It's an expression for his desire, favor, and blessing. It also symbolizes God's jurisdiction over, get this, every area of life. See, just as a a burnt offering symbolized wholehearted devotion, a grain offering symbolized a whole life submission. No area of life held back. Listen, there was no compartmentalization of the ancient Israelites. They didn't just worship in one set and say, well, that's my church life, and then I've got all these other different lights. No, that's not. The Lord was king, and he was king of the office, the kitchen, the living room, the bedroom, every single area of life. And the grain offering symbolizes that fundamental truth. It was a gift to a sovereign Lord. Just a reminder, by the way, that this whole worship project, bringing offering before God, was instituted by God himself. And it was given to the people in order for the people to come before the Lord and create this this drama of worship where God is the audience. And, And the reason I felt the need to bring that up is because as I look across the evangelical landscape today, I can't help but to see what seems as a complete contradiction of that. What I mean is, in, in that worship, too often becomes about God performing for us. We become the audience as we sit through music that moves us, the preachers that entertain us, lights that delight and dazzle us, and we call that worship. Friends, in Scripture, that's just not the case. <laughs> The people gather before God and they present to Him worship that is pleasing to Him. Worship He has designated, initiated, and prescribed. But they are the actors and God is the audience. 
I want us to be completely and constantly sensitive to the fact that this is how God has ordained it. And I wonder even if our language displays that after church, right? Well, how was worship? It was good. The sermon was really encouraging for me. and Music was great. Well, how was worship? I pray the Lord was pleased. And here's why I believe so. Because the word was preached... And the Spirit of God used the Word to convict my heart in such a way that I long for deeper obedience and desire for Him. Uh, music, music was great. You know why? We sung Scripture. We sung God's Word back to Him, and we have every reason to praise Him, for He is good. How was worship? I certainly hope that my heart was in the right place to give my all in an engagement and fellowship with the King who saved me and created me. That needs to even reflect in our language, friends. This is what the grain offering symbolized. And this is what we want to do as we gather together for all of our church meetings. So the grain offering is not only a tribute to the sovereign Lord, but I also want you to remember it was a reminder to a covenant God. A reminder to the covenant God. Remember I told you about the memorial portion and, and you put a pin in that mentally? Take that mental pin out of the grain offering because now we're going to talk about it. It makes clear that this sacrifice wasn't just merely a gift. It was also a reminder It was to bring up a memory of something to help someone remember. The question is, who is supposed to do the remembering here? Now, this is a fact that's disputed by by many scholars and commentators. Is it the worshiper of God who's reminded by the sacrifice? Or God himself? And I I, I personally, again, I, I don't think it's necessary to have to choose between the two. Because the worshiper was being reminded as he watches the memorial portion of his offering being burned on the altar that his offering belonged to God. He was reminded that every bit of his life belonged to a covenant Lord. He was reminded that he has covenant responsibilities. There's no aspect or arena of his life that was not affected by that covenant relationship. But I I would say that if you had to ask me, I do believe that the primary focus is actually on God remembering. The memorial portion was on God's remembrance, not the worshipers. Now, immediately we have to deal with some theology. It is not that God is forgetful, obviously. God is not prone to senior moments. (laughs) That's not God. This is simply another anthropomorphism. Got that? It's a very human way of speaking about God. It's talking about God with human terms. And so the memorial portion was meant to cause God to remember the worshiper and covenant faithfulness. And, and the language of God remembering, by the way, I wish I had time, is just so pervasive throughout the Old Testament. Everywhere. God is often said to remember certain people or covenants and therefore to act in a certain way because he remembered If you recall, actually, the Israelites were actually rescued from slavery to Egypt because God remembered the covenant he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Derek Tidball explains this. He says, The aroma of the burnt portion of grain ascended to heaven like the prayers and petitions of the saints mentioned in Revelation 5.8, keeping the worshiper's need and situation before the Lord and reminding him to fulfill his promises with diligence. That's the picture. So the grain offering was a tribute to the sovereign Lord and it was a reminder to a covenant God. Finally, it was also a response to a generous creator. 
That's what the grain offering was. It was a response to a generous creator. And this is seen especially in the grain offerings of first fruits, but it's applied to all the grain offerings. The harvest they were offering back to the Lord was ultimately, first and foremost, a gift from God himself. The grain offering was recognition that God created it, sustained it, and provided it. It was a statement that every single good gift comes from the Lord's hands. But this last point about God's provision had to be held in tension with another truth we learned about the grain offering, and it's this. The offering here, it, it teaches us something about our work. This is a lesson we need to remember often, church family. The grain offering teaches us that our daily labor is to be consecrated to the Lord. Our our daily labor is to be consecrated to the Lord. It teaches that whatever it is you are called to do, your daily labor, wherever you find yourself in your daily vocation, it is to be consecrated to the Lord. The grain offering didn't just fall out of the sky into the lap of the Israelites and then they took it to the tabernacle to offer it before the Lord. The grain offering wasn't manna from heaven. The grain offering was the product of work. It was the result of human labor. Preparing the soil, sowing, Tending and reaping were all involved. The grain had to be ground. A cook offering had to be cooked. The toil involved in preparing this gift for God. It was meaningful and it was an important part of this offering. Here's the point, church family. The grain offering reminded the Israelites that work is not a necessary evil, but an act of worship. All right, it's Sunday. You know what that means, right? To, to have a play on words for what we often say at Easter time, uh, Monday's coming, <laughs> right? How often do we need this reminder? Your work is not a necessary evil. Your work is an act of worship. How quick are we? You see how this all connects? How quick are we to deny our sovereign Lord... <laughs> of who he is, that he owns every arena in life on Monday mornings. We say, all right, I had my worship yesterday. Now it's back to the daily grind. Friend, it's not a necessary evil. Your work is an act of worship. We said this often. Work was created before the fall of man. There will be work in heaven, and it'll be good. (laughs) It'll be perfect. You and I were created to work. Now, the difficulty of work is itself a reflection of the curse. But the work itself is a gift. You can labor and toil, and it is directly connected to your worship. It itself is an act of worship. As Tidball writes, biblically speaking, work is not a necessary evil, but an act of worship. It is service Rendered in the presence and to the glory of the Lord. If that was the case for the ancient Israelites, you know we're coming to the close of the sermon. You get how this is about to work? You know what question I'm about to ask you? How much more? 
If this was the case for the ancient Israelites, how much more should our work be service rendered in the presence and to the glory of the Lord, our covenant king? The Lord Jesus has redeemed us from a much greater slavery than that of Egypt. He has rescued us from the power and consequence of sin. And so our work should be consecrated to his service as a sacrifice of praise to our God and Savior. Christian, let me encourage you this morning. Remember that your work, whether or not it is personally fulfilling for you or you find it satisfying, is again an act of worship. Perform it with joy before the Lord. Remember, you are not serving yourself tomorrow or even your family's future with financial freedom. You are serving the Lord in everything you do. The Lord who has redeemed you, who has set you free. So we conclude with this. If we can just keep our our feet planted in the outer court of the tabernacle where we just offered up a grain offering and now we... We cast our eyes forward to the New Testament. It's there we meet the Savior, Jesus Christ, who didn't just die for our sins, but lived for our righteousness. Who in himself kept the whole law for his people. See, Jesus is not just the sovereign Lord who deserves our tribute. He's he's the faithful covenant servant who brought the perfect tribute to God his Father. Jesus is not only the covenant king who always remembers his people, but he's also the unblemished sacrifice that ensures that God the Father will never forget his covenant children. Jesus is not only the word through whom all things were created. He is the last Adam who offered God the Father the perfect work through his life, death, and resurrection. All glory be to God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So church family, we consecrate every arena of our life to the Lord, including our work. Praise be to God. Would you stand with me as we close in a word of prayer? Gracious Father, we thank you in some ways that, that it has become so easy for us to come and offer you a sacrifice of praise. We do not go to a tent far off to take part in complex rituals that require much physically, financially, mentally, emotionally, spiritually from us. But instead, Father, we we come to a place where we find great encouragement as we meet together and as we hear from your word, offering songs of praise to connect with one another. And, and, and the truth of the matter is, Father, is so often we cannot help but feel like we are the audience. Because we are the recipients of every good gift in Christ. We are. And yet, Father, I, I pray that you would not allow us to do what we are so prone to do in our flesh. To forget. To become negligent. To be presumptuous. To take it for granted. Instead, Father, would you help us to remember that we stand before you because of the costly sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we've been redeemed, not just from sin, 
but unto holiness. We've been redeemed for the purpose that you, uh, Lord, would help us and encourage us and watch us live lives fully devoted to you. Do you help us to do so in a way that honors and glorifies you? Would you help us to encourage one another when we slip, fall, or grow weary? Lord, grant us grace today. Grace that's sufficient to cause us to love you with our, all of our hearts, minds, and souls. To love one another more than ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Church families, we come to a time of our invitation. Um, obviously, this is primarily for the church, but there's a lot here, isn't there? We need to change the way we really begin to view worship. God himself is the audience. And so as we recap, as we talk, as we invite people to worship, as we think about what it is, um, may the Lord rid us of any type of consumeristic mentality in the local church. That we would, even in our searching, even in our activity, uh, think that what we're doing is putting on Um, some sort of of business or things that are appeasing and appetizing to man. But instead, let's dig deep into the scriptures and let's formulate our worship around what most pleases our Father. And and that's obviously not just for what goes on in this building, but with our, our lives, which would be the second application for us, right? How are we doing tomorrow? And let me just encourage you, send, send a brother or sister a text in the morning, right? Listen, I'm no stranger to Mondays. You can ask some people in here, I can tell you. Um, and yet, my work is consecrated to the Lord. It's an act of worship. Worship is not something that's confined into the walls of this building. Worship is our living sacrifice we offer to the Lord day in, day out. And even just saying that, how thankful are you for the grace of God? Right? Um, how thankful are you, not just for the grace to, to excuse our laziness when it comes to offering worship, but grace to empower us to want to be better. Because often when we talk about grace, let's be honest, we, we talk about the fact that, well, I don't really have to do it because God's just gracious. But friends, grace is empowering. You know that, right? In fact, true saving grace is what empowers you to live holy before your Lord. And so I'm thankful for God's grace this week, not just because I know that I won't live perfectly and I won't work perfectly. I'm thankful for God's grace this week because His grace will encourage me to grow and to desire to worship Him more through our work. If you're not a, a, a Christian here this morning, then obviously there's opportunity for you to receive the good news of the gospel, which is simply and quickly this, that you... Um, were created for the very purpose of bringing honor and glory to a God who created all things, who owns all things, who's sovereign, who's holy, who rules over all things. You are his creation. He brought you into his world. And yet you um, have rejected his good and right and righteous design for your life and purpose for your life, which is to bring honor and glory to him, and instead have chosen a far lesser purpose, and that is to bring glory to self or to worship the creation, not the creator. That's something we all choose. We inhabited that from our, uh, from our nature, from our first parents, and yet we actively engage in it day by day, the worship of self. So we're culprits. We're guilty before this holy God of breaking his law and worshiping something lesser. And 
apart from someone saving us, you and I would be ultimately deserving for the punishment of breaking his law, which is his wrath revealed against us uh, fully and finally forever in a place called hell. But the good news of the gospel is that this father is himself loving. And out of his great love, he sent his son Jesus, fully God, fully man, to live the life that you and I should have lived but could not live and then die the death that you and I deserved as lawbreakers. Jesus did not deserve that death because he never sinned. And yet he willingly went to the cross and bore the full wrath from his Father for sinners like you and I. And then gave them the gift of his righteousness that he purchased through his living. So that our Father can now look upon us and see the substitutionary atonement and sacrifice of his Son in our stead. That we would be hidden in him. And how do we respond to this news? That's the question. It's to repent of our sins and believe in the gospel. Repent means to turn away from living from ourselves and worshiping creation and instead turn our worship to the right one, the one we were created to worship. And to believe means not just to know the things about salvation, that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, showing that his sacrifice was vindicated in the eyes of God, but it is to trust and rest in those things for our salvation. 